I was thinking this morning, I, I learned at one time, you ever had to change a light bulb in one of those high ceiling places? You use this long pole and it's got like a different attachments to it and you reach the pole up there and you change, you change the light bulbs. The reason I learned how to do this is because when I was in college, I showed up uh, at a at church on Sunday morning on the fall back day and I was there an hour early. And the guy was like, you wanna help me change the light bulbs? <laughs> and so I was like, okay, okay, I don't know what else to do. And that's how I learned how to use one of those things. That's not the sermon. So I apologize. It's only downhill from here. Um, no, if, if you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, I'm going to read in uh, Mark chapter 6 this morning. And I think it's going to show up right here. And I know I'm just going to begin by reading it. Um, so little context, it's always hard to just like parachute in the middle of a scripture. Um, Jesus has just completed the miracle known as the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, here's, here's what happens next. It's verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Would you play with me this morning? Jesus, thank you for your word. Of all the gifts you've given us, your word is one of the most precious. And by it we know you, and we're so thankful to know you that we can't not thank you for your word. So thank you. I pray that you would apply it to us and begin with me, Jesus, for I am a sinner. Forgive me of those many sins this morning and let me communicate clearly in your name, I pray. Amen. I don't know how many of you know this about me. Some of you do. But, uh, my family ran a family business in Colorado. It's a, a nursery and landscape business for 90 years. Uh, my last name is Woodman and our family business was cleverly named... Woodman Brothers Lawn and Landscaping. That's pretty good marketing right there, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, because of this, uh, I grew up working on landscape crews all around the, the Denver metro area. And uh, because it was a family business, I worked a lot with you know, my other family members, cousins mostly. Uh, but the family business was too big to just be run by the family. And so every summer, we would always hire seasonal help. And I remember... Uh, one summer, my, my dad hired this guy named Brian. And Brian was pretty cool. Brian, how do I, Brian made it obvious to us all that he was a Christian. Okay? I didn't say he was tactful. I just said he made it obvious. And one day, I remember, I show up at work with my cousin, and we're walking through the parking lot together, going up to the offices to start our day, and I look over and I see Brian's car. And Brian has a bumper sticker on his car. It says, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. 
I didn't know what that meant. And so I turned to my cousin, and I said, hey, look at, look at Brian's car, look at his bumper sticker here. Who, what's he trying to say about his boss? What's he trying to say about my dad? <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> well, my cousin, he takes one look at the bumper sticker, and he looks at me, and he goes, you idiot, that's Jesus. Only he didn't really call me an idiot. That's the uh, church morning PG version. I, there were several other words in there that I won't repeat. Really funny, right? Really funny because in a lot of ways, even when the revelation of Jesus is supposedly obvious, we can still miss it. And if there's one thing that the Bible says that sort of clouds the otherwise obvious revelation of who Jesus is, it's a condition called hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness, I'm going to define it like this. It is the resolve to counter some action that God takes to reveal himself. Hard-heartedness, the resolve to counter some action that God is taking to reveal himself. It is an invisible intention. It's dangerous precisely because we can be hard-hearted and not even know it. Looking at hard-heartedness in the Bible, right, it, it's a little strange. Sometimes it appears that God hardens people's hearts himself. And other times it appears that people harden their own hearts. Kind of the hard-hearted uh, enemy number one in the Bible is Pharaoh. Uh, in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is, he is set up as the mortal enemy of God's people, right? He, he can't kill them off through infanticide. That doesn't work. So he decides he's going to make their lives miserable as slaves. And when they finally get away, he chases them down in the desert with like the ancient equivalent of strike force drones. Okay, chariots. That's all they had. They didn't have strike force drones yet. But if he had them, I'm sure he would have used them. Because every time God... Uh, tries to reveal himself in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh's hard-heartedness works to counter that action. So that all being said, think with me for just a second about the dark irony in the passage that we just read. Who, who does it say is hard-hearted? Not, not Jesus' mortal enemies. His own disciples. The hard-heartedness of the disciples keeps them from understanding what Jesus is trying to do in revealing himself. And just like these first disciples, you and I can harden our own hearts today. We've got a couple strategies for these. I wrote a few that I am personally an expert at. We act like we're in control of situations to counter Jesus' control over our own lives. Or, we choose to focus on our own adverse circumstances in order to counter what Jesus wants us to see. Or how about this? We dismiss whatever is mysterious. We explain it away in order to counter Jesus' own revelation to us. Some of you guys are like, yeah, my friend totally does that. <laughs> well, if I'm your friend, then yeah, totally. In this passage, Jesus clearly wants to reveal himself. And it might seem 
like the revelation of Jesus is actually thwarted by hard-heartedness. But what I hope to show this morning is that the revelation of Jesus is ultimately the, the strong enough to break through even the hardest of hearts. I want us to see that Jesus reveals himself particularly in three ways. So, outline, three words, here it comes. He reveals himself with authority. That's number one. He reveals himself through adversity. Number two. And finally, he reveals himself in mystery. And in all these ways, Jesus shows himself to be the antidote for the hard heart. So, first, let's talk about authority. Look with me at at verse 45. Jesus has just performed the famous miracle called the feeding of the 5,000. I mentioned this. And then it says, Jesus compelled his disciples to get into the boat. Okay, so for clarity, he doesn't ask them to get in the boat. He doesn't invite them to get in the boat. He forces them to get in the boat. I don't know about you, but I've not seen a grown man compel 12 other grown men to do something like that unless the grown man has a weapon, right? Jesus is not armed. He just has that much authority. And if you think that that is an impressive display of authority, then look what happens next, because it says, next, he sent away the crowd. So there's a crowd there, right? How how many people are we talking about? Well, he's just performed the miraculous feeding, and it says there were 5,000 men. That doesn't mean that there were only 5,000 people. That means that they only counted the men, which means counting women and children, you're talking about upwards of 15,000 people that Jesus just stands up and dismisses by himself. That is an impressive display of authority, right? His, his authority here is, it's not derivative, right? There's a lot of things that Jesus doesn't do right now, right? He doesn't get out his wand. He doesn't roll up his sleeves, stand back, right? He doesn't like deputize himself with some government hat and say, oh, by the power invested in me, I'm telling you all to leave and execute, you know, leave, evacuate the area. He doesn't do, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't even pray to God the Father and ask for help. He just stands up with his own authority and dismisses 15,000 people, and they do it. That's authority. This morning, if being hard-hearted for you means that you are imagined that you are in control, the, the good news for you is this, that there are no hard hearts, and there are no soft hearts over which Jesus does not have authority. So that is, you and I, we can harden our hearts against God. We can do that. But we cannot ultimately remove our hearts out from under his jurisdiction. We can't do that. Before I uh, came here to to Grace and Peace, uh, we had a friend who was in a a church small group with us. And uh, she, she was not a Christian. She had, she had grown up as a, uh, a missionary kid overseas, and uh, she, she, she really wanted her. There's a part of her that really wanted to believe uh, in who Jesus was, but she just couldn't, just couldn't quite get there, right? Anyway, she was invited to go on like this Christian retreat kind of weekend thing. She goes on this weekend, and then she comes back, and she's at our, our small group the next week. 
And through tears of joy, she's telling us that she has found faith in Jesus. And we're all very curious. We're like, hey, what, what was it, right? What was it for you that allowed you to just kind of, you know, move from, from no faith to faith? And she says, well, on this weekend, they gave me these words and they made me repeat them over and over. And I was like, well, that's not what I expected you to say. <laughs> but I was really curious. I was like, well, what, what, did, what, were, what were the words, right? And she said, I'm not God and I'm not in control. And simply for her saying those words over and over was enough for, for faith to break in and, and set it in her heart. Okay, so that's, the, that's people who are alive today, right? There's other things going on, I recognize in my analogy, right? Like, she was raised in a Christian home. <laughs> she was taught the Bible from her youth. She was at church and at church small group with us, right? So let's not pretend like those things aren't true. But what about those people out there that have none of those things? There are people on, alive on planet Earth today, they have no written Bible in their language, they have no church to attend, and they know no Christians, it's not that they have no Christian friends. It's that they know no Christians. They don't know anyone. Okay, do you know who else had no written Bible in their language, no church to attend, and no Christian friends? The disciples. They had none of these things. And yet Jesus still has the authority to reveal himself to them. And if Jesus has the authority to reveal himself to the disciples, even without any of these things, we can rest assured that he can reveal himself to any hard-hearted person or any other person on this planet. He has the authority to do that. So Jesus reveals himself with authority. He also reveals himself through adversity. So look, at, look with me at uh, verse 47 here. There we go. It says, later that night, evening came, uh, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Okay, this literally says that Jesus saw them being tortured by the rowing, for it was a hostile gale. Okay, that is strong language. Remember here, there are several career fishermen that are on this boat, right? It's not like they've never seen a storm from the inside of a boat before, okay? But it's not just the presence of this storm that is so, I don't know, shocking about this passage. It's the sense that Jesus has somehow set this whole thing up. I mean, look with me, just follow the order of events here, right? So first, uh, it, Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat, right? He forces them. He compels them, right? After that, it says, evening came, verse 47. Next, we learn about the storm, right? And we can't say for certain when the storm starts because, you know, it doesn't really say. Maybe it was in the evening. All we know is after they got in the boat, right? But then it says this in verse 48. It says, about the fourth watch of the night, he came. So the fourth watch of the night, that would have been between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. Anyone picking up on what that means? These disciples were out there in the storm for hours. Largely in the dark. I'll tell you what, I was on a sailboat once 
The last 10 minutes of the sailboat ride, some clouds started coming in, a little light rain was going, I could hear some thunder, and I was like, this is terrifying. Get me off of this thing, right? These guys are on an ancient wooden dinghy out in the middle of nowhere in what the Bible calls a hostile gale in the dark. How do you even find the land in the dark when you're on a boat? It's not like they were scanning the horizon for the lights, right? There was no electricity. At this point, after Jesus lets us go on for hours and hours and hours, he finally shows up. It says, he came to them walking on the sea. Turns out, I've never walked on the sea before. I know that that it shocks your self-conception of me right now. My kids are going to spend the afternoon crying on the bathroom floor because I have just so taken myself down in their minds, I'm sure. I've never walked on the sea before, but I'll tell you what, if I could, first I'd calm the storm and then I'd get on the sea. Okay? Just saying. Not Jesus. He walks right out in the middle of it. He waits until his disciples are separated from him in a storm, on a boat, in the dark, for hours, and then he shows up and reveals himself. So this morning, if being hard-hearted for you gives you tunnel vision on your circumstances, the good news is this. You do not need to wait for better circumstances in order to encounter Jesus. Jesus is not waiting for your circumstances to get better in order to reveal himself to you. He might allow adverse circumstances in your life. Frankly, he may even create circumstances in your life so that he can reveal himself to you in it. I grew up big game hunting here in Colorado. Any, anyone else ever done big game hunting? Okay, there's like one person and my son. That's lovely. I have some explaining to do. Uh, big game hunting rifle season is normally late in the year, mid to late November, okay? Uh, it takes place, uh, deer and elk hunting takes place high elevations at that time of year, okay? 8,000 feet and above. And uh, animals like that are most active in the morning. So basically, every big game hunter in the world has one strategy that they're using. It's the most consistent strategy, and that is hiking in the dark, set up in a spot where you know you can see something, and sit there and wait. Okay? I don't know if you've ever been outside at 8,000 feet in November in Colorado, but it is, it is not the Florida beach. Okay? It is cold. There was one hunt that I was on as a kid, that it was so cold that my dad came to me and he said, Jason, we got we to gotta light a fire and, and warm up over here. It's, it is freezing. I have no idea how cold it was. It's as cold as I've ever been in my life. And he, he pulls us a little bit you know, more into the woods and he, he lights a fire. And I realize I am numb in my feet all the way up to my knees. So I tell my dad, I'm like, I can't, I can't feel anything below my knees. And he's like, okay. You need to take off your boots because we got to get your feet warmed up, right? So I take off my boots, and I've kind of got my feet like this over the fire, right? But at the same time, I'm hunting. So I don't know what I was thinking, but, you know, I'm still kind of doing this. 
like trying to look out into the, the big open field over here where the, the animals were walking out doing like this. What was I thinking, right? Like, what am I going to do? Turn around and like shoot an elk with my feet sticking out, no boots on? And I don't know. But I wasn't paying attention. And my, my dad goes, Jason, look at your feet. And I turn over and I look. And the, my, I had gotten my feet too close to the fire and had literally burnt the tops off of both of my socks. And my toes are just dangling out there in the Rocky Mountain air. And I was so cold that I couldn't even feel it. That's cold. I'll tell you what. Every big game hunter knows that if you don't sit still in the cold, you are never going to be successful. That's because the animal that you're looking for is never going to reveal itself unless you are willing to sit there and wait for it. And that means sitting in the cold. That animal could be there the entire time. It could have been sitting 40, 50 yards away from you, even closer, but you are not going to see it unless you sit there and you wait out some adversity. And in the same way, <laughs> we can't be so focused on our own circumstances, on our own adversities, that we fail to see them as the chance, the very chance for Jesus to reveal himself to us. This is what he does with the disciples. And he can do the exact same thing through the adversity in your life and in my life right now. So Jesus, he reveals himself with authority. He reveals himself through adversity. And finally, he reveals himself in mystery. Okay, I know that a mysterious revelation sounds like a contradiction in terms, so let me do a little explaining again. Um, I think we would all agree something else that's mysterious would be a miracle. Right? It happens, can't explain it. It's a mystery. And there's a ton of miracles happening in this little passage, right? In fact, there's at least three, right? So you've got the walking on the water. Okay, that's the obvious one. That's one, right? He, there's the calming of the storm. He gets in the boat. And the storm dies down. That's two, right? What else is there? Well, there's this passing reference to the feeding of the 5,000, and they didn't understand about the loaves and that commentary. So we can count that, right? That's three. I actually think that there's one more in here. Or at least there might be, Right? Look with me um, at, at verse 47 here, back, back a little bit. Um, it says, the boat was out on the sea. We already looked at this, right? And it literally says it was in the middle of the lake. So this is probably the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles across. So the boat at this point that Jesus sees it is, what, six miles away? Six miles away in the middle of the boat, while Jesus is uh, on, on the land, right? How exactly is it? that Jesus was able to see a boat six miles away in the middle of a hostile gale? Okay, it's at least possible, right? It's at least possible that this is miracle number one in a series of four in this passage. So we're talking about a ton of miraculous stuff packed into just a couple of words here, okay? But on top of all of that, when Jesus finally reaches the disciples, it says this in verse 48, he meant to pass by them. Okay, this is not like Jesus out like on his C-top speed walk, like, hey guys, what you up to? Cool, see you on the next lap, 
Okay, that, that, is not, that is not what is happening right here, okay? There's another sense in which the author wants us to see that pass by has particular meaning. In Exodus, this is the book uh, where, where Moses is, you know, commissioned to go rescue his people from hard-hearted Pharaoh. Uh, he talks to God at one point and he says, show me your glory. And God says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And you will proclaim before me, or I, you will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now that's probably the sense that pass by carries here. In supporting this is what Jesus says next in verse 50. He says this, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. If you've heard me before, you know I'm big on this phrase, do not be afraid. It's one of the most repeated commands in the Bible. And that means one of the best questions that you and I can ask ourselves is, what are we so afraid of? Okay, but take that, put it on a shelf for a second. I actually want to look at the words before this. Before this, he says, it is I. Okay, in Greek, two words. Ego, amy. That's all it says. Two words. I am. These are the same two words also found in the book of Exodus where uh, God is uh, revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses says, uh, look, if I go and rescue your people, God, and they come and I say, the, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is this God's name? What shall I say to them? And the two words in the Bible that the disciples would have used are ego eimi, I am. Same exact words. So the disciples here, right, they're witnesses to like four miracles, something like that. Plus they get all of these clear allusions to Old Testament, all of which are designed to show them who Jesus really is. I gotta tell you, People in the Bible received far less than this and fell down on their feet and worshipped. But the disciples were utterly astounded. They did not understand, and their hearts were hardened. You've probably seen something before called a Reuben vase. Anybody know what a Reuben vase is? Oh, man. No, I'm just kidding. You've seen this before, you just don't know it by that name, okay? Uh, you see the, the picture that in the middle, it looks kind of like an hourglass shape. But if you look at it, you can also see two faces that are staring at each other. Okay, I'm getting head nods. Whew, thank goodness, right? That's, it's, it's called a Reuben vase. That's what that's called, right? You can't force somebody else to see the faces in a Reuben vase, can't do it. But you can be sure that the artist who draws a Reuben vase intends you to see it. In the same way, right? Jesus, Jesus doesn't force his disciples in this moment to go, oh, I get it. He's the great I am. He's the God of the universe. He's the God of Moses. He's the redeemer of his people. That's who Jesus is. He doesn't force them to see that. 
but he certainly intends them to see it. There's, for sure, there's inescapable mystery in the, the revelation of God. You, you just can't get around it, right? In theology, sometimes people call this God's incomprehensibility. But it is still God's intent that we see him through his own revelation. And it is the point of this story in Mark that if we fail to see Jesus as God, the problem is with us and not with how Jesus chooses to reveal himself. So this morning, if hard-heartedness for you looks like dismissing everything that's mysterious out of hand, explaining it away, saying that doesn't fit, that doesn't compute, that must not be, there's good news, and it's this. Jesus doesn't force you to comprehend everything about who he is before you experience him. In fact, the, I think the mystery of Jesus' revelation is better news than we, than we often reflect on it. And here's what I mean. If Jesus really needed us to, to understand everything about who he is before we believe in him, I mean, our heads would explode far before we ever got to faith, right? But even a child can have sincere faith in Jesus, right? Even the mentally ill, even the developmentally disabled can have sincere faith. I knew another Christian in my high school. His name was Nick. Nick was a year ahead of me. Nick was on the track team, and I liked Nick because Nick was always really nice to me. And I, at this season of my life, I, I wasn't a Christian, and I didn't know any other Christians that were nice to me. Nick made an impression on me. Nick was in a near-fatal car accident while I was in high school. Left him in a wheelchair. The event so damaged his brain that he was left almost without the ability to speak. And yet, anyone that was close to Nick could clearly see that he had maintained a sincere faith in Jesus even after the accident. The absence of faith has much more to do with the way we harden our own hearts than it does with our mental abilities. And the presence of faith is always dependent on some degree of mystery. If we give that up, we're forced to diminish God in ways that we, don't, we just don't want to go there. Augustine said it like this. He said, if you comprehend, it is not God that you comprehend. If hard-heartedness is really the resolve to counter some action that God takes to reveal himself, then claiming to comprehend God is the most hard-hearted thing that you can say. Because if you say that, there's nothing else that God can do to reveal himself. Only a hard-hearted person says, there's nothing, nothing that I would accept that God could do that would allow me to see him or see him better. Well, just as Jesus is revealed in the mystery to his disciples, so he also will, and frankly, he must reveal himself in mystery to us. But that mystery is the very thing that we actually need to see him, to understand him, to receive him at all. 
Okay, so in closing, I'll say the revelation of Jesus is the real antidote to the hard heart. So let's stop pretending like we're in control. Because we're not. And Jesus has authority over our hearts whether we pretend like it or not. And let's look past the adversity in our own lives. Let's not be so focused on the adversities that we fail to see them as opportunities or fail to see Jesus in them, in those opportunities. And let's, let's embrace the mystery of faith because there's nothing else. And with that, let's pray. Jesus, you are good to your people. You are good to us. You come to us when we don't even ask you to, when we don't even know that we need you, when we have nothing to confirm what's true, and you make it so clear that you are here, you are with us, and you intend to save. I pray, Lord, that you would be present to us and that you would break this hard heart of mine, soften it, allow it to know you better. Do that for us. In your name we pray. Amen.